Welcome everyone to the 71st episode of Kiwi Talks. I am speaking to a well-known actor within New Zealand, Jed Brophy, or some call him Master Jedi Brophy, which, which I like. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. Just, just to clarify that, my nickname was, my mother used to call me Jedi which is J-E-D-I, so... Oh, really? Kind of, yeah, so from the time I was about four or five, it's been her um, pet name for me, so I'm not trying to take over Lucas films or anything like that. It's just I predate Luke Skywalker. Well, that, that makes it even more applicable that you end up in Star Wars at some point. You need to yeah, wouldn't Wars. it be great? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you know Taika Waititi? He's doing a Star Wars film. Yeah, I know. I, I try really hard not to use my relationships with people to try and get work um, that's good that's actually good because i'd be tempted yeah. if it was me yeah so you're a better person than i am well done you, you know I, i'm not a, i'm not above throwing out the old hint but yep. um it usually backfires and he employs someone else <laughs> well the good thing is i can do it for you so i can kind of subtly chuck it in you know yeah 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 because yeah, it makes sense jed it and does. I on the end yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i'm waiting uh, What's that? You're waiting. I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how does that how does it how does that work? Because uh, do you have an agent in the states? I, I have a I had a manager in the states for a while, and in fact, um, I heard about a job and got a job on the Shannara Chronicles through that, um, and and it really helped me because I knew the rates that they were offering the American actors, so I was able to negotiate really hard through my agent. But uh-huh. I live here. If I want to go and work in the states, if I wanted to go and live and work in the states. I would I would chase that really hard and get an agent there, but it doesn't really doesn't really help us getting work here. Not not for the companies coming here. They 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 go through our own agencies. Luckily. Oh right, is that how it works? Because yeah. I always thought because I think when you get big enough, right? Because I'd imagine with LA being the you know the the basically the the epicenter of Hollywood and obviously where all the films are being made, you kind of have to be there. But once you get to a certain level, you could kind of be like Carl Urban and live here and still get work there through word of mouth. I think you have to go and live there for a while and be seen by the agents and the producers for them to get to know you. And um, I have to be really honest about this. Nothing against the people who live in Los Angeles, but that place leaves me cold. I don't, get a I don't get a feeling of it being a place that I would ever want to live now I live on the Kapiti coast I grew up in Taihepi on a sheep farm this is who I am and this is where I want to be and this is we've been very lucky actually because of Peter Jackson and because of Rob Tappert and because of other people starting their own studios here they all want to come and shoot here we've kind of we're in a situation now best situation we've ever been in in terms of people wanting to come and not just use our locations but use our amazing crew. Our crew are talked about as being the very, very best on the planet in terms of problem solving and in terms of the cutting edge post-production facilities that we Mm. have and that we're doing. And so for those of us that have managed to stay here and get work on um, Australian or English or um, American productions here, we're kind of in a, we're in the best possible place we can be. We live in paradise. We eat organic food. We have a prime minister who genuinely, you know, cares about the safety of every single person, you know, in terms of the way that we dealt with COVID. I think we're blessed to live here. And I may have left it too late to go and live in Hollywood. <laughs> well, the, you, what, what is it that they say the grass is always greener on the other side, but not necessarily. Yeah. I, I find every time I go overseas, I appreciate New Zealand more. Yeah. And I'm sure that would yeah. be the same for you. Yeah, I lived in London for a while. I took a, um, a theatre show in 1998 to the Edinburgh Festival and we won a Fringe first and we got a season in London. And so I did some auditions for the West End and even got a part just before Lord of the Rings was greenlit and I flew back home. And I did seriously consider living there, but it's, I'm a small town boy. Those big mm. cities, they do something to my mental state. I get quite frazzled. And I think I found Los Angeles like that too. If I lived out of... Los Angeles State, maybe if I lived up, you know, up California or maybe even lived in Vancouver because I lived in Vancouver Island when I was a 14-year-old um, for a brief time. I could do that. But I need to be able to go and see my horse. I need to be able mm. to see my friends, go in the sea and just have that kind of New Zealand sensibility where people tell you, pull your head in. That doesn't happen <laughs> in Los Angeles. They're telling no, you to I... grow. 
Yeah, I bet it doesn't. I did. I I think I remember reading somewhere. I heard somewhere that that you were considering moving to Vancouver. Yeah, I mean, I would. I, that's because I've lived there on Vancouver Island. It's one of the few places in the world, apart from New Zealand, I would consider living. And I've got friends who have started their own studio there. Unfortunately, they kind of got it up and running just before COVID happened. So. Mm. The back end of this, when we all are allowed to travel again, hopefully one day, I'm still going to go and have a look for sure. Mm. So how did you become Peter Jackson's go-to guy? <laughs> how, how did that happen? Because you've been in almost every single production of his. And in Lord of the Rings, you were, what, seven characters? Yeah, I, I think there's a bit of luck involved in how you get to meet people where they are in the industry and at what stage they're in the industry. I originally auditioned for Lionel and Braindead two years before they made it and a year before they made it. And the story is that a person from Senator Films, a producer, stole a million dollars to originally make Braindead and they took off with it. And so they were left with a crew in Wellington and they make Meet the Feebles. He'd met Richard and Tanya and they'd just been doing this TV puppet show. And so Meet the Feebles happened. And when they came around to do Brain Dead again, when Senator came back with more money and said, we're really sorry that that person did that, they changed it from the 1990s to the 1950s. And I was doing a play uh, written by Stephen Sinclair, who's one of the co-writers of Brain Dead. And he said, oh, I've got a friend coming to see you tonight on stage. I've been talking about you because you'd be perfect for this part. And Peter came backstage and offered me the part of Void. And I initially, my initial response was, I don't really think I want to be a zombie until I read the <laughs> script. And it was, I mean, left the script there and I read it. And it was so funny. It was just so hilarious. And I'd sort of forgotten about this audition I did for Lionel. I didn't really, hadn't done a film before. So, um, so yeah, it was kind of a, that was kind of a bit of luck that I was in a play that, that the character's very similar in terms of his attitude to the world as Void was. And then working on that film, he really likes visceral actors. He likes actors that will do, try and do their own stunts, who are really physical and will try to kind of create a character so that he doesn't have to give you a performance. He expects people to come with a performance that he can tweak. And I think, you know, Tim Baum and I, we talk about growing up on that film and learning, learning how meticulous he is in terms of his shot selection and how much he rehearses and how important it is to concentrate, but also understand the, the inner world of your character. A lot of directors don't give you that. He gives you great backstories, but he expects you to go away and do your homework. Um, and I like someone who, who gives you the confidence to actually do that. Mm. And, and yeah, and, and then I auditioned for Heavenly Creatures and got the part in that. And then I guess because I'd done prosthetics on Brain Dead before, when it came to do those orc characters, they were looking for people that they could stick in the rubber and they could actually perform through it. And again, initially, I wanted to be Aragorn, you know, or yeah. Faramir. As, as a young man growing up in Thai Happy, I was Aragorn riding around the hills in the sheep with the orcs. But you've got to sell a film, and you've got to sell it with people with a profile, and you've got to sell it in Hollywood. And so, you know, when I sort of understood that, I embraced playing the nasties. Someone's got to play them. <laughs> Someone's got yeah, to be the yeah. bad guy. Yeah. Because how, so how, long, how long were you in the prosthetic work for? Like when you were getting it done? Uh, um, the longest my makeup was for Shaku was seven and a half hours. Oh my God. Seven yeah. and a half hours. What do you yeah. do? You try not to go to sleep because, and I've told the story many times overseas. The one day that I went to sleep, they used to, I had nine layers of body paint and they used to have five artists, two working on my face and the rest painting my body with these nine layers, putting scars in and embedding the scars into the paint. Then they'd roll me over and do my bag. And the one day I went to sleep, they wrote, somebody who's never owned up to this, and if you're out there listening, please know that I will find you. <laughs> they wrote, I love Vigo on my butt cheeks. And they took photos. And um, apparently he ended up with one, I don't know. And um, yeah, to this day, uh, there's a great quote. It's okay to love a man, you can even like him, but don't have his, uh, his name tattooed on your ass. <laughs> That's kind of the quote that came away from that particular incident. So if you can't fall asleep, then how do you keep yourself sane or not bored, I suppose, when, when you're just sitting there with someone just on your face doing what they need to do? You can sort of talk. I mean, there's, you have to be careful when they're doing 
you know, usually the prosthetics are done in pieces. So they'll put the chin piece on and the forehead piece, the cheek pieces. And then when they're doing around the mouth, you have to be silent. But I'm, I'm not bad at not having very much sleep. I'm pretty good with that. Um, I find it actually worse to go to sleep. I feel like I lose energy. And I love watching the makeup go on. It kind of helps me build that character. As the pieces go on and I can see how the character started to take shape, I formulate a plan for the day. So that's how I use that process. Mm. Um, I've, I've read, you know, Doug Jones, who does a lot of prosthetic work. He's probably the, the, the king of prosthetics in the States. He's, he's the same. He likes to see the process of the makeup going on and kind of go into that inner being in terms of being able to do that creature work. You have to be, you have to be able to go to a place where you're not thinking about being uncomfortable. Because if you start thinking that, that's your whole day. That's all you can think about is being itchy, being feeling tired, the lenses scratching your eyes, you know, the teeth hurting, not being able to talk properly, not being able to eat properly. If that's what you think about, you'd never do it. So it takes a it takes a person who can com- compartmentalize the uncomfortableness to be able to perform. And I think that's why, you know, I hate being typecast. And I, you know, I've said many times I won't do prosthetics again. But there is a challenge involved in it, and I quite like challenges. Mm. Because also the thing is with those orcs that you played, you use different accents. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you come up with the different voices, I suppose, for them? You just you just play around with it. You yeah. know, the, the great thing with working with Peter is he's, he says, don't tell me, show me. So when you get on set, you have a crack at it and he'll go, yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't like, I don't think, I don't think he talk like that. <laughs> so you've got to try and, you know, you have to, you have to have an A game and a B game and you have to be willing to just throw it all out the window. And it doesn't matter what director you work with. That's the same thing. You come with an offer and if they're brave enough to, to follow you, they'll do that. But, but all directors also have in their head an overview of how they see it. And so you have to be willing to, be bold and be quite strong to hang on to your idea, but you also have to be willing to throw it out the window if it doesn't serve the project. Hmm. Originally, and I don't know if this is true, but originally I was told that the orcs were meant to be Slavic, have a kind of a Russian oh. accent. So we were taking the orcs, these taking the hobbits to Isengard, you know, <laughs> and um, the wizard, <laughs> I hate the wizard. You can imagine how long the film would have been. It's already oh, four and a half hours, but if you had this quite slow accent, it would have slowed it right down and maybe a little too comic. There is a good story here that there's a scene in Fanghorn Forest where I'm playing Schnager and I get my head cut off. And there's Ogluk, there's, you know, there's uh, Nat Lees and there's Robbie Magasiva and there's myself and Stephen Ewer are all on set. But we were in New Zealand when they were doing the ADR in London. They had two days to get the film finished before it showed at the premiere there. There wasn't going to be enough time to fly us. So we did our lines down the telephone to Andy Circus at Abbey Road and he mimicked our voices. And so every single character in that scene is revoiced by Andy Circus doing the accents that we made up on the day. What? Really? Yeah. Well, they just there was just not time. There wasn't time to, to get us all out there in time before the film showed. That's how, that's how when, when you've got someone like Peter who shoots right up until the last day, that's the kind of pressure that you end up on, you know, to get the film released. And so was that's it, the situation we're in. So was, it, was there much difference between the filming of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, or was it largely the same in terms of how it was structured? Very different. We had, you know, we only had eight weeks of location on The Hobbit, whereas we had 14 months of location on Lord of the Rings. So there's a lot more ADR because where the studios were in Wellington is right next to the airport. So every time a plane went over, you can't use any of that dialogue. So I think probably 98% of Lord of the Rings had um, dialogue replacement done afterwards, which is a skill in itself. Um, And also, you know, when you're shooting exteriors and doing plate shots, it takes a lot more time to post-produce. It was shot on 35 mil. So, you know, you have to process screws and screws and screws of film to edit. Um, and although he did a lot of takes, he didn't do as many takes as he started doing once he was working digitally. Because it doesn't matter how many takes you do, you can just go over it. Um, and yeah, largely we were in these big sound studios. Most of it was done on huge sets that this amazing crew of construction people managed to roll in and out every day. And a lot of green screen. A lot more green screen on The Hobbit than there was on Lord of the Rings. So if you've got a theatre background and you're used to imagining things that aren't there for yourself and the audience, it makes it uh, a much easier job if you can kind of dispend belief and imagine that there's a dragon there. 
and Martin won't mind me telling this story, but <laughs> there was a day when we're trying to look where the dragon is and Peter said, the dragon's there and then he's there. And Martin was like, so he moves quite quickly. And he went, no, 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 he's there. And he's also joined and he's also there. That's how big he is. And we were sort of looking at the dragon like it was moving very quickly, but we were trying to look a bit like the Starship Enterprise with everyone moving in the same direction, trying to get 13 or 14 actors to all look in the right place at the right time. You get crew walking around with big sticks with a ball on the end to be the eye line. And that becomes your day. It becomes a very, a very interesting day when you're just trying to make up stuff in your head so that the audience believe it's there. It must be easy though, when you go to a premiere, because you don't know what the effects are going to look like. And so like, let's say you see Smaug, you must be like, Oh my God. Like, yeah. because you have no idea what he's going to look like. Right. Well, the great thing about both those projects was they were very smart. They got the two illustrators who are most famous for doing Tolkien's work, um, Alan Lee and John Howe, and they would come with these amazing sketches to give us a kind of an idea of what things look like in the scale. They also built these, these amazing scale models, uh, what we call the model room. So you could go in and have a look and see the scale of things. But then they built these incredible life-size sets like Edoras, um, you know, down the South Island doing Lord of the Rings. They built a wooden city for the Rohan to be in down there in, um, on top of that mountain, um, you know, down there in Clearwater. And then in the set, and then in the studio, they built the same life-size set for you to work on. So they do a lot of the work for you. But you're right, when it comes to creatures, you do have to have a vivid imagination. And then when you see it on screen, you go, how did they even do that? How did they know to have me swinging in that direction, knowing where the beast was going to be and for it to take the blows? And those special effects people, I know they get paid well, but man, they earn their money. They really do. Because it's, you know, I couldn't do what they do. To have that imagination, but also to make it move in the way that a creature should move, that stuff takes, you know, that takes a lot of talent. It takes a lot of time as well. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever gone to Witter and just sat in while they're doing it? Watching yeah, what they're doing? Yeah, I have. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to interview Peter in the editing suite. I think I might be the only actor that's ever done that. I was definitely trying to get myself a job. Yeah, <laughs> there was there's big posters of the damn buses. I'm going, you know, you're going to remake that. I'd be great as this character and that character. But he talked about how his job is to edit the rhythm of the piece in terms of it's not always about performance, but about the rhythm of the, of the set piece in terms of the build and the resolution and the build and the resolution and what you're actually trying to tell in that story. Then that gets thrown to the special effects people. Once he's done, uh, you know, the edit of the, of the rough draft, then they have to piece those bits into, you know, they, it's like putting a jigsaw together, trying to get the right effect in there and how that effect then changes the edit and then it has to go back to him to re-edit it once the special effects have been done and then the post-production of the sound has to go on that every single footstep has to be foleyed every single sound effect has to be right and then mixed so that it doesn't overcome the dialogue or the um or spoil effect for the audience so it's um that post-production is probably the most painstaking part of it anyone can make a film but not everyone can make a film palatable by getting the special effects right and, you know, we have the best in the world. Most, most um, big blockbuster features in the States have some input from Weta Digital, you yeah. know, um, to finish them off. Yeah, a lot of those big Marvel films at the moment are done by Weta. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we get to do a lot of motion capture for those films here. I, you know, I did some this year in Portsmouth Road for a couple of films, actually, because of COVID, um, where we go in and we try and seamlessly mimic a performance from an actor and then do some action or dialogue or whatever, and then they can kind of piece that in there. Because with motion capture, you can play anyone. You know, I can play seven foot, I can play two foot. I can play a very wide person or a very skinny person, and you can do up to four or five characters in a day. In fact, when we did um, the reshoots for Tintin, there was only me and Jamie Bell, Andy Serkis, and Nick Blake and Eddie Campbell doing all of the characters for the reshoots, with, with Steven Spielberg directing from LA on occasions and Peter directing here in Wellington. So was Steven Spielberg ever in New Zealand, though, at any point? No, he was directing via satellite. Really? That's, yeah. that's weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but it's... You get used to it. That's yeah. the that's the world that um, Peter and people like Richard Taylor and Jamie Selkirk and and all of the other people that put the infrastructure together. You know, Philippa and Fran, they've made it so that we have that kind of facility that you can be anywhere on the planet and still beam stuff in and have it finished or or worked on here in New Zealand. We are 
we're the envy of the of the modern filmmaking world here because we have a sensibility that we're not too big for our boots, but we have some of the best craftspeople on the planet working here. We are very lucky. Yeah, we definitely are. I hope I hope as the years go by, New Zealand invests more in technology or innovative technology because it makes sense, really, considering yeah. what we're able to achieve. Imagine what we could do with um, more money invested into it. Yeah, it's it's been the. I mean, I think the late Jim Anderton actually said that maybe 15 years ago that we should be investing in um, that kind of technology and that kind of invention, putting more money into that than into primary industry. And he's probably not wrong. The, the very lucky thing here is with having both Peter here and also James Cameron is that they are not in competition. They're trying to advance that kind of technological um, advancement together and Spielberg as well. And they're all, they're all, you know, they're all pretty tight with each other. And I think, I think that helps us here in New Zealand because a lot of that is actually being produced here or the ideas of it are being produced here. We just don't have the raw materials to make a lot of that stuff. That, yeah. I mean, that, that, that is the biggest problem is the, the, the heavy metals and things you have to mine to, to make that technology available. It may not be sustainable. That's my mm. own. I don't know that for sure. That's my fear. It's a good point, though. It's a good point. Yeah. Did you do any work on Avatar 2? Or have you? Can you even talk about it? Probably not. Um, yeah, I did a little bit of motion capture on it. I can't talk about the project, obviously. Yeah, of course. But yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so you've met James Cameron? I have, yeah. I, yeah. I, I managed to meet him at, um, when we were doing The Hobbit, actually, and I got to talk to him about going down in the bathosphere. That probably was ah. the... Yeah, was a, that was a, a cool thing to talk about. You know, he, he's... Most of these people who work on these, you know, Spurberg and, and Peter as well, they are geniuses. They, you know, they are there. The way that their mind works is different to other people, I think, the way that they see the world. And I, and I think that we're in a kind of a, a place in the industry where they've managed to rise to the top and they're kind of pushing the envelope. And so we're very lucky to be able to be included in that. Yeah. There's one little cameo that you did, which I really love in District 9. Yeah, a small little thing in your doc in your documentary section, because yeah. I think it, would that would that have been a day's work? Well, you know, where you just say that it, line. It, it was, and if, in forms. fact, I, I did two or three hours of, of quite a big monologue that Neil wrote for me, and that's the that was pretty much the one throwaway line that they kept. And he explained it. He was very honest about that. He said they'd shot a lot of this um, uh, outside stuff, you know, on location in Johannesburg, and what he. What he wasn't sure of is whether the pictures told the story. And so the documentary stuff that he did was kind of linking and explaining. When they came to cut the film together, they realized they didn't need all of the stuff that we'd done, that they could actually go outside and show that rather than actually have us talking about it like talking heads. Mm. I was actually at a surf lifesaving competition in Gisborne when I got the call if I could be in Wellington at six o'clock the next morning. And I drove through the night listening oh to the gosh. rugby channel listening to Victor Matfield on the rugby channel talk about playing the All Blacks <laughs> and going for the eyeball, trying to get that kind of Rustenburg um, yeah. accent. <laughs> so, I mean, that happens a lot in this, in this industry where you sort of get caught up at the last minute and you have to try and, you know, race to, race to some location and get yourself sorted. Yeah, because how long is that drive? Is it, what, nine, ten hours? Yep. I literally didn't sleep. I arrived at five to the time I was supposed to be there got, and I was pretty tired. Yeah, I bet. But just, yeah, but I just, um, I'd heard about what he'd been doing and I'd sort of, you know, I'd been around at the time when they were going to do Halo and yeah, it was just a really interesting project and I love, I love the dialogue that he wrote and it was just him and me and the DOP in the room. So it was just the three of us and that's, that's always the best. You kind of feel like you're, like you're in the game and it's just the three of you and there's no one else getting in the way. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's, it's an iconic line because obviously you're talking about the prawns. So yeah, the prawns. Yeah, the they prawns. look like prawns. You can't say they don't. Yeah. They look like that, so we call them that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, and it's also, that's also an ad-libbed line. And that's, as an actor, that's, that's a win. When your ad-lib gets into a film, you go, okay, I obviously sort of know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. did, you, did you do that much in, in Lord of the Rings or uh, The Hobbit? Did you get to ad-lib at all? Or was Peter pretty <laughs> particular about the script? Because it's Philip and Fran writing the script, yeah. you, you kind of have to try and say the words. I mean, you know, <laughs> Martin, yeah, yeah, I think Martin Freeman, he's, um, he's pretty good at trying to get the old lad libs in there. And there is one, he got a yus, a Kiwi yus into the film. Um, he's he's oh, talking dude. about having stolen the Arkenstone, I think. And he goes, and Gandalf says, did you take the Arkenstone? He goes, 
Yes. He was determined to get a Kiwiism in the film. But um, <laughs> it was great watching him and Peter negotiate, trying to get him to be consistent, you know, because he likes to do every take differently. And um, there, was a, there was one day where Ian McKellen walked back to lunch with his arm around him going, please just do what he wants or we'll be here till 2025. <laughs> you know? I think we were 30 takes in. And that was the same for everyone. But the great thing is it's a pleasure to work on those sets and it's a pleasure to work with the man. And so you want to try and, in some ways, you want to try and stretch it out as much as you can because you're having such a good time. Yeah, well, it makes sense. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff on both, both trilogies and like, it looks like there's a, a good camaraderie there between there the is. Yeah, yeah. I've you know I've said this quote before, and it's probably not mine, but I think they employ good people that just happen to be really good actors. But it's because you're stuck together in that very close confinement and working in very hard, long hours. You know, they're long days. You want a group of people that are not not going to pull. They're not going to pull the "I'm in my trailer" stunt. I'm in my trailer. I can't be bothered. They want people who are actually willing to get up and do the work and and get on with each other and. They kind of embrace that. They have these, what we call soirees, where the, the cast and the crew get together and we have these parties to kind of not just relieve the stress, but also talk about what we've been doing and enthuse each other about other projects and, and kind of hang together and, and generally enjoy each other's company. It's important when you're working on something where you've got to try and, it's much easier to be comrades and not have to manufacture that to, than to manufacture camaraderie when you all hate each other. And um, I think both those projects I'm still friends with all of those people I worked with. And whenever I travel, I try and catch up with them. Um, even here in New Zealand, you know, Graham McTavish and I meet every couple of weeks for coffee and just talk about stuff that we're doing and, and hang out together. And I, I, I do readings for him for auditions and I'm, I'm his lucky charm. He's got a few of those jobs. That's a, that's um, a good segue actually, because I only found out recently that he lived here. I thought he still lived like over in the UK or something. Cause, and yeah. I kept seeing him in videos and stuff in New Zealand. I'm like, oh man, he comes here a lot. And then obviously yeah. you did your, uh, the iFit stuff with him, which yeah, must have great. been really, really cool. Well, he'd just done it in Scotland um, with his trainer, Nikki, And uh, he actually suggested me because of my knowledge of, of this country, having you know ridden around most of it on horseback. One of my primary jobs on Lord of the Rings was one of the, one of the 20 full-time horse trainers. So I got to see the entire country from horseback. And I, I know... When I was at university, I, I, I tramped the Root Burn and the, and the Hollyford and, and the Reese River. And so I know a bit about the, the, the structure of what makes this country beautiful and was able to suggest to them some of the places they went, but also remind them of the importance of the land to the Tangata Whenua, to the people of Aotearoa, the, 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 the Māori people especially, and to pay reverence to those place names to try and get them right, but also just how important it was that we understood where we were walking and what had happened there. Um, and so, you know, Graham put me forward for that. He actually got me that job. He, he talked me up. Oh, and, that's um, so cool. I, yeah. And I'm forever grateful because it was the coolest gig, man. We got, to, we got to go to some places that I'd not been to and to share that with people in another country. And I've always talked about that on The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings too. One of my, one of my biggest uh, takeaways was being able to show not just my friends from overseas, but the rest of the world just how amazingly diverse and beautiful this country is and how we need to protect that. I talked about that a lot, you know, with, uh, with the IFIP people from Utah, just about how we've got this clean green image, but actually that's a kind of a diminishing thing. We need to, yeah. we need to be honest about that so we can do something about it. And although we saw some beautiful places, I also pointed out the places that weren't so beautiful anymore. Yeah. I mean, I was in Queenstown a couple of weeks ago showing my partner around cause she's from India <clears throat> And I hadn't been to the South Island since I was a teenager. And uh, it was just crazy to me. Just every lake and river I saw was blue, like clear, clear blue. Yeah. And like you, you come back to the North Island and, you know, you see polluted rivers and rivers that are green. And, uh, yeah. and it's, it's a reminder that, yeah, we need to make sure that we protect it. Yeah, it's, we talk about there being this loss in overseas tourism, but the infrastructure isn't there in a, in a lot of the places. When we went to um, tramp the, the Hooker Trail up to Aoraki Mount Cook, you know, we were, there were queues of people on either side of those swing bridges and there were no rubbish bins. 
I watched people just dropping tissue paper and all sorts of things in front of me. And I ended up grabbing a bag and getting some of the crew to follow behind as I picked stuff up. And I talked about it on camera. They didn't use it, obviously, because that wasn't the purpose. But it made me really angry that there isn't education as to, to why we shouldn't be. And it wasn't people from overseas necessarily doing that. It was Kiwis as well, dropping litter on a trail of this most amazing beauty. It, I don't understand it. It does my head in. I just don't understand why you would do that and not think, oh, I'm here enjoying the beauty. I'm going to mess it up. It just Maybe it's where I grew up in Thai Happy. I think that a lot of the people there do genuinely care about their environment and they, as a community, try very hard to look after that. And mm. I think that there are small places all around New Zealand doing that. But as soon as you get that many people coming, you know, the, the millions of people that come to New Zealand all at once and the infrastructure's not there to begin with, then you're up against it. Then it's a clean-up. You're not ahead of the game. And I'm not saying that we should have big signs telling people, but there needs to be some sort of education. You know, if, if the Department of Conservation and, and um, Forest and Bird and the people administering those tracks could have people there educating those busloads of tourists coming about what's expected, when you come to this country and how we all need to be katiaki and, and look after it, then I think that's important. That, that's, you know, that's my takeaway from that IFIT thing is we could do more. Yeah. I sometimes wonder if we should be like Singapore and just find people that litter. Absolutely. Canada too. When I, when I was there when I was 14, it was a, I think it was a $500 Canadian fine if you were caught littering. And they, you know, and it's on the spot. You, you either pay it or you don't drive off. So, and, and, you know, that was, they were having people just chuck stuff out of cars there. It was kind of a, a thing that was happening there in 1978 when I was there. And my mum used to work for Keep New Zealand Beautiful. And it was one of their things is going into schools and educating kids about why you just carry it to the bin. And right here in Paikakariki, just down the road at the surf lifesaving one day in the car park, a group of young people just opened the door and shoved all of their McDonald's out. And they were literally five yards from a rubbish bin. I don't know where that kind of behavior comes from. Is it that they don't care or they're trying to make a statement or they just are so lazy? <laughs> I don't it know. Could be, it could be all three. It could it be. Could, yeah. It could be, but it's, you know, we can't expect people from overseas to adhere to what we see as being the rules of keeping something beautiful if we're not willing to do it ourselves. I think a lot of Kiwis take it for granted, though. I know for sure that I did. It wasn't until yeah. I went overseas that I appreciated it more because you're yeah. born into it, so you don't know anything else. Yeah. Um, I know when I went to India, I was like, oh, okay. I fully yeah. understand now. Um, yeah. yeah, so it, it's definitely yeah. something we need to be um, more appreciative of. I'm going to have some politicians on here at some point, so maybe I can say yeah. But hey, we need The to film industry, others. too, you know, we... One of the one of the most amazing things when we shot um, down at Edoras is that they took all they took a thousand plants that were endemic to only that place. They took them out and they kept them alive, and then they put them back at the end of filming. And we shot in places that the Department of Conservation and the local EB had never allowed anyone to shoot before, simply because there was a promise that we would leave it better than what we found it. And I'm very proud of the fact that. You know, probably, you know, 90% of the time on Lord of the Rings and on The Hobbit, we managed to do that. We managed to protect the environment and pay reverence to the people who own the land and, and love the land that we would not actually destroy it as we were shooting. The mm. film industry is fairly, it can be quite a toxic environment in terms of the stuff that you're using and the amount of stuff that gets chucked away. So we need to kind of look at that as well. And, you know, we'd need to be mindful of the fact that Although we're creating this great entertainment and education for people, there is a cost. Yeah. So do you have like a favorite place that you've visited within New Zealand? Where I grew up, there's a, there's a waterfall on the Hautepa River, which used to be our waterfall. And that's my two don't, you know, that's my, that's where my waiter, my spirit resides. When I go back there, the world disappears. I'm at peace. It was on my grandfather's property and the waterfall was parpered and it ran down into this beautiful deep pool on the Hautepa River, which only runs 23 k's. You can still drink from that river. It was full of eel and, and uh, full of brown trout. And that's the place. If, I, if there's a place in the world that I could choose to live, it would be going back there. Because mm. I know you're a fitness freak as well, or as Mark Hadlow has said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of like your fitness regime, 
what do you do day to day, week to week? I do a lot of walking. Yeah, look, I do a lot of walking. I walk the dog as much as I can, and I go to the gym three or four times a week, especially if I've got a project coming up. But I've done that since I was 17, since I knew that I was going to go and be a phys ed teacher. That's just been part of my regime. And I taught aerobics for a long time back in the day. So, yeah, I, I keep fit. I keep fit not just for my job but for my mental health. It's, um, if you're not working, if you are at least doing something active, it kind of keeps you from worrying about that stuff. So it's a double-edged sword, you know. Um, I've lost parts because I'm too fit. But I what like do you mean? being fit. What do well, you mean, you know, you've lost parts for being too fit? You know, people say, oh, you, you're too fit. You, you, we're looking for someone who's a you know, middle-aged slob. Is it, oh, yeah, cause it's right. a, it's a well, physical can't you just wear industry. a fat suit or something? Well, you can, but productions are not going to go to that expense <laughs> if they can get some. But the great thing in this country, of, in terms of my age group, there's a lot of people who are really good who have cut their teeth, you know. Um, and that, that sort of keeps you... That keeps you from getting lazy too. When you when you've got competition out there, people who are equally as good as you and have done as much work as you, got to work on the luminaries, um, that TV show, and it was amazing to see how many people in my sort of generation are still out there doing it and are at the top of their game. Really, really good people. It was it was a reminder actually. I looked around and just went, oh, okay. There's a lot of good people in our industry, and they're all hungry for work still. So it makes you stay competitive makes it you does. stay motivated and ambitious yeah and you can't wait by the phone you also have to make work for yourself you have to go out there and chase it and i don't mean going to parties and talking to producers i mean finding projects that you want to do and finding writers that um that can write them and talking to directors about projects that you that you like i'm, I'm working on a one-man show with a writer called ken duncombe at the moment about woody guthrie and so i've been learning the songs and learning about Woody's life and it's a two-hour monologue you know, it's one man on stage, and this is, we're doing a reading on Saturday to see if there's any worth in it. You know, we've got a group of people coming in to sit there and tell us if they think this is a project that has the legs. And so that's something that Ken and I have been trying to do for 15 years. We've been talking about it, and um, finally we're sort of, we're in a place now where we can do it in this country because the rights have become public. Um, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. You are so good at different accents. Have you done much voice acting? I have. Um, again, it's again. It used to all happen down here at Marmalade Studios. It all moved up to Auckland, and, and I think you know, location is everything. I haven't really pushed in the in the last few years. I haven't gone chasing it. I've, I've been busy, but my grandmother was from Scotland, and so she had a brogue. And I think if you grow up with an accent in your family, you start to manufacture it yourself because you hear it every day. You know, people talking like that, and you know like i do a good version of billy boyd <laughs> yeah i'm billy boyd i'm like i was a hobbit i was really cute i love it but you know i'm a mimic and so when i went to scotland i heard the different accents and different dialects and i'd try it on and see if i could get away with it i got into trouble a few times because some kiwi friends of mine were staying there too and they came in and then i started talking as a kiwi and the scottish people were like well you're winding us up what's your problem here you think that's funny I'm like well, no, i was just i was just seeing if i could get away with it <laughs> You know, uh, but I, I imagine you could easily get voice work. I mean, particularly like say with like video games, cause it's more cinematic these days. So they have a lot of voice actors. Yeah. I have done some of that as well. You know, I've, I've done a few voices on, 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 on the occasional thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, but, but, what have you done? What have you done? Um, you remember the, uh, John Alomu all black game? Yeah. Did motion capture on that and did some of the commentating and the whole t I did two of the characters into Papa for the Papa exhibition for yeah. um, World War One, and I also narrated the whole thing. But you know, those kind of character voices are, are, are crusty New Zealanders or New Zealanders from the time. I did play Soan Toogood's 87 year old father in a radio play. Oh, I had to be this kind of crazy Southland farmer took a lot of this in there. So I did a lot of radio back in the day when we did radio drama. And that, that's really good for actually getting your accent work and also jumping between characters. But, yeah, oh, I don't know why I haven't chased it, actually. I just, I need to put down a new reel for, for my, um, they keep chasing me to do that. And I'm just, it's not laziness. I just haven't really thought about it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy on YouTube who basically, I think he spends about 10 minutes just mimicking all these different actors and stuff and it's really yeah. really good but i reckon yeah. if you did something like that it would easily go viral you'd easily find work and i suppose all you need is like a studio with a a mic and you're yeah. sort of really particularly these days with covid yeah my, my biggest problem is I, I 
it's probably the same for most Kiwi actors. I don't really rate myself. It's it's a weird thing, eh, when you when you work all the time, but I don't I mean I do it for my friends and for those people around me. It's it's kind of weird for me to do that kind of thing. Although during lockdown I did do a play for um, a monologue. We had to, a writer spent 12 hours writing it and then I had 12 hours to learn it and film it for um, Centrepoint Theatre and I played an Irishman <clears throat> written by my friend David Geary from Vancouver and you know people are saying so you're Irish? I'm like no and then on King Kong you know I played an Irishman on that and, and for all the behind the scenes the behind the scenes person thought that I was from Dublin because I told him I was and I had to kind of once I'd started I had to stay in that accent <laughs> the whole time we were filming. <laughs> And at the end, when he found out I was a Kiwi, he was not, he wasn't horrified, but he was a little bit angry. <laughs> well, that's a compliment in a way that it is when you can convince someone from their own homeland that you are from there, then you, yeah. you've got it right. Yeah. Cause usually but, people can like, I can pick out when, um, you know, an American is trying to use a, a, a Kiwi accent. Usually I can yeah. be like, eh, it's not quite right. But yeah. Yeah. So like, Oh, it's a testament to you then. You're too yeah, humble. But, That's what it is. Too humble. But it's always for me. It's always been just for the people around me. I'm, you know, I, I like to entertain. It's, um, it's, I, I, and I know, you know, someone said you should do stand up, and I'm like, I'm terrified of doing stand up. I have so much respect for those people, because I would just, I just like doing it for a laugh. I'm not really doing it to try and make any money out of it. I, I know that sounds weird. It's just, it's my pastime. <laughs> well, you got nothing to lose, I suppose, if you're doing it as like a, a pastime thing as opposed to an actual job because then the pressure's on because you have to make money and you know people yeah. are paying to see you so they are and that the, you know I've, I've spent some time around stand-up comedians and that pressure they feel it the pressure to come up with new material all the time and and to and to be funny 24 7 it's um i think i'd find that a bit wearying and, and again i like to do lots of different things maybe one day maybe one day i'll have a crack and just see if it's that terrifying and see what happens yeah, give it a go. Why not? Yeah. Life's, life's too short. As COVID life has is, shown, life is too short. It's, you're very true, actually. It's been, a, it's, been an, it's been very bad for the rest of the world, and it still is. But I think it's also had some positive effects. That very thing that you said is that it could all be gone tomorrow, and why wait? Why wait for that tomorrow? Get on and do it today. Yeah, I think, it's, I think one of the things I've seen is uh, I think society has become too complacent as a result and COVID is kind of a way of mother nature in a way saying, Hey, I'm still in charge. Yeah. 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 I think yeah. you're right. You know, this, I've got, you know, two sons, 24 and 28 and this generation have it tough, man. They have it tough because we didn't, we didn't get onto cleaning it up. And now we're at the, we're at the, at the sharp end. There's no more complacency. There's no more waiting. There's no more time. You know, we've, we've got the planet to a, to a tipping point. All the great scientists keep talking about it. All the politicians keep putting it off till tomorrow, and it's time. And when you have them on the, when you have them on your show, ask that question of when they're actually going to get the dustpan and brush out of the cupboard and actually start doing it. Because it's all so very probably well to give me a political answer, knowing them. They will, and they're very good at that. <laughs> oh yeah, they the are. That's why they're politicians. Yeah, that's why but I probably couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. But yeah, it, it worries me. It worries me that my generation leaving behind a legacy that's going to be impossible to fix. Yeah, well, I, I worry completely for the next generation. Obviously, you've got climate change and then you've got the the gap between rich and poor is growing. I mean, housing in this country is getting insane. It's it's getting yeah. really out of hand. Um, yeah. I mean, I, we, we, yeah. We had that opportunity to, you know, to put this tax on people having property investments and it saddens me that we didn't and I know all of those property investors out there if they're listening they're going to hate me for it but it's just if I have a small business you know and I do um you know I sell photographs I've got a I've got a calendar coming out of my photos and an artist who painted those photos we've got an exhibition happening this afternoon I have to pay tax on that that's that's a business I'm expected to pay tax on that as a as a you know GST person it's no different if you have an investment house why should that be exempt from exactly the same tax as anybody, your business included, has to pay. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But yeah. the, the problem is a lot of these politicians have investment properties. Yes. And then also <laughs> a lot of their base have investment properties and they don't want to lose votes. So yeah, 
and so you've got, you've got the two big parties that don't want to do anything and then the minor yeah. parties that do want to do something they don't get enough clout or media attention to really make any difference so you're kind of just stuck in this you are hard place. if they all if they all had to live in a moldy flat that had no insulation and they've got five dollars a week of a disposable income at the end of paying their rent and their fees it might be different and I know some of them might have done that in their early days, but it was different times then. In my flat in Dunedin, the entire flat, there were seven bedrooms, cost $75 for the entire flat. I mean, you wouldn't even get a, you wouldn't even get a toilet for that these days. Yeah. Yeah, 400, you know, 250 300 $400 for a room in Wellington. It's just nuts. And when you're lining up to go and have a look at a flat and there's 145 people there and then someone comes in with a water cash and just says, well, I want it, they go to the top of the line. You can see why young people are just going, well, the future isn't that bright in terms of me being able to have a place just to live in, just to have a place where actually rest my head. Yeah, because I'm originally from Auckland and I moved out of Auckland and bought a house in Hamilton, um, primarily because I couldn't afford to live in Auckland. I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, yeah, I'm never going to be able to afford a house here. Um, and it's gotten yeah. worse in the time that I've lived. And I know Wellington is getting really bad as well. Yeah. It's like yeah, almost it's on par with Auckland. It's, it's, it's yeah. insane. It's got past that. It's got, it's got to the point where students are all moving home because they don't have a choice. You know, the fees, are, the fees are high. The jobs that they're able to get while they're studying don't really pay the rent. So there is a shortfall there and they're kind of getting further and further in debt. And we wonder why there's so much anxiety in that community. It's because they simply don't see that there's a way out. Yeah. You know, you have you have to address the big stuff that they're dealing with. It's a, it's a trickle down effect in terms of how it affects the psyche, and we're seeing it more and more. GPs and people working in mental health are seeing it, you know, every day. And I also think, you know, talking about our industry, we need to also make sure that we're telling those stories too. You know, we do a lot of entertainment, but there's also we have not just a responsibility, but I think there's some there's some stories there that we could tell in our industry where we actually ask those questions in a dramatic way to get people to think about it. I mean, at least that's my hope. Maybe those people that we're talking about, the people who can do something about it, maybe they wouldn't watch that program. Maybe they'd, maybe they'd ignore it. But I do think, you know, as storytellers, these are the stories that are happening right now. I was part of a group of um, people doing a project called Roxy Five, where Jamie Selkirk, who built the, um, f the fabulous Roxy Cinema in Wellington um, in Miramar, he, uh, ran a competition for colleges and whoever won that competition for short films got to have their short film remade with professional mentors and when it came to the writing we said to them don't don't try and tell american stories don't try and tell car chases tell the stories about what's happening to you and your fellows right now and the film um, by this wonderful filmmaker called awa was, was called Black Dog and it was about depression. And it was not just moving, but it was really, really insightful in terms of someone from that generation talking about what was happening to her and her friends. Mm. Um, it, was a, it was an amazing piece of storytelling because it was so honest and so moving. And it wasn't about trying to be cool. It was just about telling the truth. And I think, you know, my hope is that there'd be more of those films. Um, I'm an ambassador for the mobile filmmaking community worldwide. I was on a judging panel with Steven Soderbergh and um, Mr. Parker, who made Tangerine last year. And, you know, on this, on this thing here, we shot a feature film in 30 hours um, last, uh, two years ago in Mochawaka, and, and that film went worldwide. This is in your pocket. If you have a lens that you can put on this and a gimbal, you can go out and make a feature film. You can make yeah. a short film. You can tell stories. And so... I hadn't realized that before. I wasn't part of that community, but now I am having realized that Soderbergh has made three feature films on a phone, one with Claire Foy. Um, some very popular people want to work that way. We don't necessarily have to be part of the big studio. We can actually just get out there and tell those stories. And there is a platform. There are platforms that we can show it on, you know, not just YouTube, not just Vimeo, but actual mobile streaming platforms made specifically for phones. I see that for young people as being, a game changer because everyone has a phone. It's not like you're having to go and buy that equipment. Yeah, well, that's the right. Lenses are, the lenses are two or three hundred dollars to turn it into widescreen 4K. You know, that's what it costs you to set it up. You just get out there and have a crack. Yeah, because you seem pretty up with technology. You seem pretty you up with have play. To be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, working on that project with Steph, with Steph Harris, the director, and with and with Mark Hadlow, 
we hadn't used that technology before, but having but seeing how easy it is, the apps like Filmic Pro Max an app that that color grades as you're shooting it, you can shoot from 24 up to 60 frames per second with that app there. And if you have an app that takes it off your phone onto a laptop or onto a hard drive, your phone doesn't fill up. That stuff is all there. And those people are very generous. They've been very generous with their time in terms of explaining that to me and other people how it works. And there's lots of, um, you know, streamed uh, documentaries that show people how to use that equipment. But young people know it. They already know it. I talk about it and they go, yeah, 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 we know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're like you learning know. apps and everything, you know, five-year-olds like learning how to do coding. It's, it's insane. I know. It is. It is insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, I just, I see that as being a way of them getting into the industry, learning how to, 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 to make those stories. We're the only country in the OECD that doesn't have a mobile film festival. The one that Mark and I went to in Sydney last year, it's in its sixth year this year. The one in San Diego has been going for 15. Um, the one in the Netherlands where we won the Supreme Award has been going for 10. And oh, so good. we're sort of behind the game. Oh, well, we need to make it happen then. We do. We How do. do we make it happen? Well, so we, need, we, need someone, we need someone like Ant Timpson or someone like the late Bill Gosden who can actually get the, get the city councils on board. You need someone who can walk that walk. I'm okay at talking to those people, but I need someone who has that kind of kudos here in Peter Wellington. Peter Jackson and, could. He could. He has a yeah, lot. He does. He does. It's just getting to. It's just getting a sit down. <laughs> yeah, I imagine he's there. really busy. I mean, people have asked me like, who's the number one guy you'd want to have on the show? And I'm like Peter Jackson, but I know he doesn't do interviews much, and he must be insanely busy, and he's intensely private. So um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know him well enough that I could probably get five minutes, but I wouldn't want to bug him unless I had the infrastructure in place. Like, he'd be a good person to actually put a stamp on it, but I'd like to see that it was actually the people who can make a difference who aren't just him. You can't always go to him all the time. There's, there's a lot of people in the filmmaking community in Wellington that also, they also need to step up. Mm. You know, the, we, we've, and I'm not bagging the Film Commission, but they don't have anyone there that understands making making films on phones. Is, is it because they're all old heads? It's just because of the fact that it's a, it's a government-funded bureaucracy. They have to have targets that they go for, and they have oh, to have a right. charter and a structure that they head towards, and unfortunately, it's not part of their charter as yet. Um, I hope that it will be. I hope that there's a branch of it that looks at how to get young people into films. Because if you're trying to raise $100,000 to make a 16-minute film... How do you justify that? Yeah. We made a feature film in 30 hours on a phone for $12,000. And that won awards all overseas. It won, it won feature film awards at proper festivals. But trying to get them to understand that has been, it's been really difficult. I'm going to be honest about that. It's been yeah. a, like a closed door. But I wonder like, if you had a young person within the film commission that could help explain this to someone. So I had a... Uh, so I had a business guy, Rob Campbell, uh, on yep. my show a while back. He's like chairman of Sky City and stuff. And um, he had someone that pitched them, uh, pitched to him esports, like in terms. And he was like, "I don't get it." He he didn't understand it at first. He's like, "Why would you? Why would you watch video games? Why you know it's an interactive medium?" And this guy yeah. had explained to him like, "Well, you watch sports, right? Like you go yeah. and watch sports." And so he had to use that analogy. And he's like, "Ah, oh, okay." And I know when I was speaking to him, he's like, look, I still don't quite get it, but I understand how it can be utilized. So maybe it's yeah. just a simple matter of some young guy who um, has a lot of swag, has a good yeah. with, gift of the gab, and can probably yeah. just speak to these guys and maybe give them another perspective. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And there are good people there. You know, I've got some friends that I have talked to about this. It's just the way that they're set up. It's all, it's looking for the next Taika Waititi or the next Peter Jackson mm -hmm. or the next Nikki Kara or whoever. And it's kind of, the idea is to be able to go to these sales places with a bunch of New Zealand films and to be able to sell those. And, and they just haven't caught up with the fact that, you know, we went to Cannes. We sold our film at Cannes this year. But, but there was another film there from India who was, you know, in competition as well. And, and so it, this, is, this is not just the future, it's the now. It's not looking to say we're trying to take away from shooting on the red cameras or on 
Super 35 or, you know, we're not trying to take Christopher Nolan's job. This is a way for young people to get their stories out there. And worldwide, there is a huge platform for them to get it on. So you're right, it, it does come down to that. But I think you sort of, it's a chicken and the egg thing. We can keep going and banging on the film commission's door till we're blue in the face. It's better just to do what we did and get out there and do it and then be able to say to them, hey, did you realise we just won another award? Did you realise we were at Cannes this year? Did you realise that we sold it? Did you know we yeah, well, that's, that's probably the best way. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Because I yeah. think you've always got two different types of people. You've got people that kind of cling to the old way of doing things. Yep. And then you've got kind of got people that kind of just are very ambitious, uh, very forward thinking, and they're chasing the new thing. I mean, Peter Jackson was, was pretty much that. He was that Absolutely. guy. Yeah. Yeah. But what's his quote is don't wait by the phone. The phone ain't going to ring. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got to right. get, you got to get out there and, and just do it. You know, like his, like you know him making bad taste all those years ago. You know, he had so many things happen that could have put him off, but he just kept going because uh, he's not just a visionary, but that was his passion. I, th I think young people, I think they'll get onto it. You know, I've been banging on at this every time I go to a school and when I go and talk at the writer studios from Miranda Harcourt and various things. I always say to students, this is. You know, you can go and shoot on this. You know, I've shot a series of photos on it that have, we've made this, you know, made this uh, this calendar from. And I just did that with a Moondog anamorphic lens, which is used for filming, but it turns it into beautiful widescreen. And the definition is off the planet. There's no reason not to go and do that. The, the, the equipment's out there and it's cheap. Um, a friend of mine who works in uh, Canada, she's making her first feature film on a phone with that technology as well. Um, uh, she was in uh, Once Upon a Time, Mrs. Keegalicious, as we call her, and she's making a feature film because she was in lockdown and had nothing else to do. And, and she sees that as being a way of her doing her first feature without all the pressures of a studio telling her who she's got to cast, you know, where she's got to shoot and how much money she's got to raise for it. And it's the same with Soderbergh. You know, you know I saw his interview about doing Unsane. He said, I waited seven years. I waited for seven years in studios and talking to people. And then I just went, oh, I've got three weeks. I've managed to get clear for you. I've got a crew of seven. Let's just shoot it. You know, if you've got yeah. one location like that and you can lock it down and light it well, you can actually shoot very, very, very simply. I think sometimes the studios are just so focused on money and there's all the politics that they yeah. lose sight of that. They get in the way. They all want mm. to be creative. Let the creatives do the job, man. Your job is to find the money and then sell it. Don't mm. get in the way of an auteur. Um, I may be speaking out of turn here, and I'll, you know, probably if those people ever find me, I'll get slammed. But I think that Warner Brothers kind of got in the way of, of Peter and the Hobbit. I think they got in the way of him being able to do what he does well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's pretty evident during the behind-the-scenes stuff that uh, there was a lot of fiddling in there. I mean, obviously, yeah. Peter Jackson would probably be the only one who could say hundred percent but um yep. yeah you know, there, there's, a, there's a big contrast between lord of the rings and the hobbit and that even in terms of pre-production right because yeah peter jackson had so much time to plan and like yeah. with the hobbit he didn't and i think um there's some behind the scenes footage which shows that basically you're laying the tracks directly in front of the train yeah 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 it, it was a it was a there was a feeling of unease too, because I've I've known Peter for twenty seven, probably near thirty years, and I could see that he wasn't the affable, funny kind of relaxed person that he usually is. You can feel that pressure when someone, you know, if you jump in bed with the devil and they give you six hundred million dollars, there's you're answerable, you're answerable to their whims. And Warner Brothers love or hate them; they're into franchises. They're into building a series of films that follow on from each other to generate income and to generate merchandising. And, you know, that merchandising is an ongoing thing. And they've got various people whose job that is to do, but none of them, none of them are auteurs. None of them are filmmakers. None of them are people that can actually look at a script and in their head imagine how you can actually get the best drama out of that. And if you get in the way of that process, you're actually stopping someone from actually getting a flow on. And that's what I think happened. That's what I could see happening is that there was not that same flow. You know, Peter would see stuff on Lord of the Rings and get, get this amazing idea about how he could shoot the next scene from stuff that was already happening on set. But if you've got people dictating 
what your day is going to be, then that stops it. I mean, I might be making that up. I'm only talking about what I personally know from the difference between those two projects, the freedom that we had on Lord of the Rings and the tightness of, of what it was like on The Hobbit. Mm. Well, he looked tired. That's the other thing yeah. as well. He looked really tired on The Hobbit and it rightly yeah. so. I mean, and I mean, there's, there's so many stories about it, but like, it just, it seems like it was just plagued with issues constantly yep. from like the get go. And even with the yeah. Hobbit lore and all that, just even beforehand, you know, yeah. so it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a streamlined process. I mean, that's not to say that Lord of the Rings would have been easy either, but. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we made stuff up. I, I tell the story doing those big gallops and twizer with 300 horses. And we had a guy called John Scott, who was John Wayne's riding double back in the day. And he's, he does all the big horse films in the States and worked on Unforgiven, the big Westerns. We were setting up and he went, oh my God how have you not killed people? <laughs> it was just that, he just said, you can't do this. And we're like, well, we didn't know. We're just making it up, mate. We didn't have a horse department before this particular film. We didn't, we didn't know how we were supposed to train horses for films. There isn't a handbook. We didn't grow up making Westerns in this country. We didn't grow up making, you know, countless, countless films with lots and lots of horses or people riding with stampeding cattle. So of course we made it up and yeah, of course we made mistakes, but, I'm still very proud of the work that we managed to put on screen. I mean, some of that horse work is just phenomenal. Dangerous, I'll say that openly. There were days when we got lucky. Yeah. But we, we you know, that, that great Kiwi way of sorting out problems couldn't have been done in any other country. The way that we just jumped to it as a bunch of people. And Kiwis are amazing like that. And, and American production companies, especially British too, just go, wow, you guys are incredible. You all do three or four jobs. You don't just do the one thing that you specialize in. But also Kiwi crew are willing to help each other. They'll jump in and carry lights for each other. They'll jump in and, and grab a horse if it's out of control or whatever. And so we literally couldn't have done that scene. We couldn't have done those shots in any other country other than here. Yeah. It's amazing to me what Lord of the Rings became, right? There's this before yeah. after with it. I mean, no one could have ever predicted how, how much impact it would have had on the world and in terms of how it put New Zealand on the map. I mean, I know when I've gone to America and people ask me about my accent, in some mall or something. And I'll be like, oh, yeah. I'm from New Zealand. They'll be like, oh, right, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Hey, do you know Peter Jackson? I'm like, well, I know of him. I don't know him personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like, it's just, you know, New Zealand is synonymous with Lord of the Rings now. Yeah. I, yeah. I think the third biggest earner in this country is film tourism in terms of people coming here to look at the locations. And, you know, the iFit people came here because they're all fans. That's the reason they wanted to come and look at those oh, locations. Really? And yeah. yeah, and a lot of the locations we chose were locations where we did actually film. So we could talk about scenes that we shot there and what it meant to be there and, and how beautiful it was, but also <clears throat> how we used that landscape to create, um, you know, a character on its own. Like I think New Zealand is, a, is the greatest single character in those films is the landscape. We couldn't have done it without it. It's breathtaking. Those aerial shots that, um, that Barry Osborne was in charge of, the executive producer, he did yeah. all that aerial photography. Those linking shots, it doesn't matter how long they go on for, you watch them. You don't get bored because it's just so exquisitely beautiful. And the thing is, those shots don't even do the landscape justice. I, I mean, know. I was down there, I took photos, I had my drone, I took all this footage. And like, I remember looking at it, I'm like, man, this just is just doesn't do it justice just i know there's no it's camera the... that can show this um no. we did a we did a flight over the milford sound i think uh two weeks three weeks ago when we were down there and like we were in a plane and i was just flying i was like man this is just br so breathtaking that even if yeah. i send pictures they're just it, it just doesn't do it justice you know it, it really looked like a scene out of lord of the rings when flying over but it's yeah. just amazing yeah it is yeah. We, we came, I, I took a, uh, coming from town now back to Queenstown and my driver had left. So I jumped in the car with Martin Freeman and um, Nikki, Nikki was our driver. And we came around the corner and he said, stop the car, stop the car. I'm sick of the beauty. This is not real. Weta has to stop doing this. I need to see a city. I need dirt. I need noise. <laughs> you know, he was just like, it was that thing of going, it, was, it wasn't that he was bored. He was just like, is there anything disgusting down here? Is there yeah. something you can tell me that's kind of crowded and London-like? But it's so true though. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. Like, 
I mean, because we hired a car, we were just driving around. I mean, we went to Mount Kirk, Queenstown, Milford Sound, Dunedin, just driving anywhere. And it's just the, the scenery constantly changes and it's always beautiful. I mean, yeah. even that drive from Queenstown to Glenorchy is like... I know. It's I just, know. it's ridiculous. Just yeah. insane. It's. I've shot a lot of stuff down there before Lord of the Rings and after. I did a, a series of um, ads for Polish vodka, which is just five guys galloping through those rivers down there in Paradise and Glenorchy. And then, of course, shot a lot of Lord of the Rings down there. But then I went back with the horse that I now own, which was one of the Rohan horses. He's one of the last, actually. He's 24 now. He was three when we started. And went down and did a series of ads for Nintendo, where I was racing a four-wheel drive through that forest there in Paradise. And um, it is, you can see why people come, because you go from one amazing kind of bit of beauty to something that looks like it's a completely different country. And it's only seconds yeah. away. You're yeah. in that beach forest, and then there's wide open plains and those amazing rivers. And then the next thing, you're in this kind of pine forest. And so partly that's why they had to shoot here. And partly that's why I think the TV series came here, is the diversity within an hour. You don't get anywhere else in the world. No, nah, you, really you don't. Do. You just don't. I mean, there's places, obviously, like um, places in Scotland and even Canada, where obviously there's yeah. some ridiculous, uh, ridiculously beautiful landscapes as well. But it's so far apart. It is. It's it is. Vast. Whereas here, this yeah, where the yeah. scenery changes constantly. So yeah, it it makes it, I suppose, easily accessible. Yeah, if you're shooting, well, more accessible, I should say. Yeah, we we had three units working full time. Four, if you count the miniatures. So we had a splinter unit, and then there was second and first unit, and sometimes they'd be 400, you know, 400 miles apart. But Peter was always in touch via monitor what was happening. Um, sometimes we'd have to chuck a horse, a special horse for someone on a horse float and just drive to get it there to be able to shoot for an hour at the end of the day because they needed it. And so it made it, it was difficult enough in this country, let alone if you're having to drive for nine or ten hours between locations, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, hey, I'm going to wrap up there. Yeah. This has been amazing. I could talk to you forever, but um, I won't. Yeah. It's been, it's been said that I can do that. <laughs> I think a lot of people could do that. I could do that myself, and I have to monitor time. But um, thank you so much for doing this. You're uh, very welcome. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if anyone wants to follow you on social media, where can they follow you? Jedi Brophy. Um, on, so J-E-D-I-B-R-O-P-H-Y on Instagram. Um, at Brophy Jed on Twitter. And I have an official facebook page um it's not administered by me but it's um i do post stuff on there just jed brophy on facebook so yeah those are my three sites cool and that they'll that'll keep you um well you update that all the time i suppose with all i do all the stuff you're doing yeah i do yeah yeah that's good all right everyone that's the show make sure you share like and subscribe and support jed and uh yeah stay safe 